0: Welcome to the Florida Bar Podcast, where we highlight the latest trends in law office and law practice management to help you run your law firm. Brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Institute. You're listening to Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by Legal Field, the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar on Legal Talk Network. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilberry. I'm a Senior Practice Management Advisor and one of the hosts for today's show, which is being recorded from our offices in Tallahassee, Florida.
2: Hello. I'm Carla Eckhart. I'm a Practice Management Advisor at the Florida Bar and a co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles.
1: So this month, our topic is cybersecurity for lawyers, and joining us is attorney Al Cycli. Al is a partner in the Miami office of Shook, Hardy, and Bacon, where he founded and chairs the firm's privacy and data security practice group. In that role, Al directs breach response efforts, represents companies in litigation arising from data breaches. He maintains a blog at DatasecurityLawJournal.com where he writes about emerging trends and issues in data security and data privacy law. Uh, the National Law Journal named Al a trailblazer in cybersecurity in 2015, and he's part of a small group of privacy lawyers who have received the Fellowship of Information Privacy designation from the International Association of Privacy Professionals. Al helped found and chairs the Sedona Conference's Working Group on Privacy and Data Security Liability. He also co-chairs the American Bar Association's Cybersecurity Law Institute, and he's our very own chair of the Florida Bar's Technology Committee. Um, In his spare time, he teaches cybersecurity laws and adjunct professor at St. Thomas University School of Business, and he is the featured speaker this month for our Legal Fuel Speaker Series, CLE, entitled Cybersecurity for the Everyday lawyer. Welcome to the show, Al.
3: Hi, Christine. Hi, Carla. Thanks for having me.
1: Al was also uh, the very first uh, guest that we had over two years ago when we first took over the Photo Bar podcast. So, so you,
3: welcome back. Yeah,
1: you are our first returning guest.
3: Well, I guess I consider it an honor to be invited back. <laughs> and, <laughs> and congratulations that you you are uh, still around and doing well and thriving. So that's Thank great. You. Thank Thanks. you. Oh,
1: wow. So <laughs> Al... Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, and I'm surprised you have any free time to also be teaching because your resume has grown since your first appearance, but how did you get into data and cybersecurity?
3: So I got into this area when I was an associate back in like 2007, 2008, and we had a client come to us and they thought that they'd had a data breach. Uh, And back then in 2007, 2008, there really weren't any lawyers, very few practicing in this space. And the the partner in my office who received this call from the client came to me and said, hey, you know how to use an iPad. Can you figure this out? (laughs) You know, it was basically the understanding was Al knows technology. Surely he can figure this sort of thing out. So I did. And it was a really interesting area. And uh, so I started writing about it. I started a blog. I started speaking about it, counseling more clients, and then we handled a a very significant pro bono case, probably late 2008, early 2009, that took off and required notice in all 50 states, and it infected it. It affected you know the breach there, it affected individuals, uh, thousands of individuals around the United States, and so it gave me some fantastic experience on writing uh, breach notification letters and um, sending out the letters and handling a breach and 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 the things you're supposed to be doing Uh, and with that experience it then turned into a lot of billable work from clients at the firm and uh, the practices just continue to evolve from there now with every state Having a breach notification law, uh, while the initially most of my work was on the reactive side uh, of data security, meaning helping companies that think that they may have suffered a data breach, I'd say now it's a pretty even split between that and the. Proactive side, which is helping companies prepare for an incident, drafting policies, procedures, helping them comply with all of these privacy and data security laws out there. So uh, it's been fascinating watching the law change and grow. And the team here went from one person in 2007 to about 25 of us now uh, at Shook that are are doing this to some to some extent. Uh, And so it's uh, it's you know I think that that's probably a trend you've seen that. a a few different firms, but um, it's been going very well for us, for sure.
2: So one of the hardest points for us to get across uh, to small and solo practitioners, um, especially because big firms tend to have a a better grasp on this, but uh, is that even as a small uh, firm or a solo practitioner, you could still be a target. So so why is it in in your experience that you find that lawyers are such big or good targets for hackers?
3: Lawyers are... Excellent targets for hackers because it's the nature of their job to have sensitive information for clients. Uh, you know, for the lawyers have proprietary secrets about their clients. They have they collect a significant amount of personal information, depending on the types of clients that they represent, particularly in the financial industry or healthcare industry uh, or retail industry. And so because they have that sort of information in their possession, they are obviously a target for hackers. And it it tends to be that the, that hackers are, focusing more on the vendors to the big companies than the big companies themselves. and at the end of the day, that is what lawyers are. they are vendors to these right. large companies and large companies are sharing sensitive information with them and it just tends to be that the vendors don't have as strong security practices as the companies themselves. and so they are um, often a focus of attack and uh, and and I don't I think it it really honestly hasn't been until the last year or two I'd say that Law firms have really started to pay attention to this issue. And up to that point, they didn't really have a a lot of really strong security safeguards. They weren't raising awareness of these issues internally. I don't think they'd even understand when a breach had taken place for many firms. And so I think that's changing a lot uh, and very quickly. But that's, I think, why they've been a target Mm -hmm. up to this point.
1: And I think a lot of non-techie attorneys, they've been just overwhelmed with, with this topics, the cybersecurity, to where they almost shut down because it's like we're speaking another language. So, And I know that you go into more detail, um, so we do want people to watch that free CLE that, that you've recorded for us. But can you break it down, some of the, the foreign words that people maybe just – Uh, haven't had time to really understand what that looks like on their end. So the cyber espionage and the ransomware and the spear phishing, can you just give us like simple definitions of those for people so we can meet them where they're at?
3: Yeah. So there are different kinds of things that constitute a data breach. And I think there's a big misconception that a data breach just means that there's a bad guy a hacker that gets into my system and steals all my stuff right. and they're based in, you know, some foreign country and they're sharing all of this information, you know, for whatever, you know, cyber espionage purposes. And, you know, certainly that is one type of a data breach, but but a data breach is any unauthorized access of personally identifiable information. And so think about that for a second. That's not just necessary clients. It could be employees. Uh, Personal information is defined under Florida law as a name plus either a social security number, a driver's license number, financial information, health information, and then there's several other uh, data elements as well. And that's just for Florida. I mean, if you're a firm doing business around the United States, then chances are you've collected information from individuals all around the US and each state has its own different different law. Uh, And so I give that definition as a way of kind of place setting a little bit, because it goes to the question of what are all these different types of data breaches that are out there. And so ransomware, for example, is a fancy way of saying that some bad guy has locked up your computer so that you can't access information that's on that computer. And you have to pay some ransom in order to be able to get that access back. And just because you pay the ransom, honestly, there's no guarantee that you will get the access back. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, even if you do get the access back, chances are it could happen again. And so paying the ransom is not necessarily the best thing, but that's a whole other sort of topic for um, discussion. So ransomware is one type of breach because it inhibits your ability to access the information. Uh, The other could be um, sort of a cyber attack, and that may be – as a result of spear phishing. Spear phishing, I was at a conference recently by Mandiant, which is the leading cybersecurity firm in the country probably, and they said that 90% of all data breaches and cyber attacks are a result of spear phishing. Spear phishing means that a bad guy is targeting a small group of individuals at a company and uh, gets there, get, learn some information about them. Maybe they go on the LinkedIn or whatever it may be and learn some information like their email address, their name, their title, and then uses that information to fish to send out an email to the individual to pretend to be someone else or to do something that somehow gets that bad guy the credentials to get into their system. They've they've spearfished, and sometimes there's a phrase also out there called whaling, you know, which is a different type of fishing. Whaling is for the really big, like the CEO of a company right. or something like that. that's that's whaling. So, so, so with this credit, with these credentials, they're able to get into the system, and once they're able to get in, they can access all the information that's in there. And one practical way that we're seeing this really happen a lot right now is with cloud-based email services. You know, Office 365 is one type, but it's certainly not limited to that. And and what I mean by that is if you log into your email using the web, you have your, your username and your password. And if somebody else gets a username, that username and password, they can go to Office 365's website and try to log in and access your email there. That's data breach. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if that happens, the lesson learned is making sure that you are. Um, limiting who has access to your credentials and using something called multi-factor authentication. And I know that's a big word, and let me explain it in 10 seconds. Multi-factor authentication means that that you are requiring more than just putting in your username and password to get access. You have to put in like some token, uh, so you know you authenticate based on either who you are, what you know, or what you have. So an example of what you know would be your credentials. An example of what you have might be like a, a card that you scan on your device or you know, a token or something. And then who you are would be like a biometric scan, you putting your fingerprint on something. So multi-factor authentication means you're using more than one of those three types of ways of authenticating. And if you do that, you, you know, I went to a presentation by the president of Google who said that is the number one piece of advice that he would give anybody to help them secure their information is use multi-factor authentication. And it's so true, right? Because if I'm a hacker and I, I have Al's credentials, Can't really do anything with that unless I have that second way of authenticating myself. So that when I put in my credentials, Al's credentials, at Office 365's website, it's then going to ask me, okay, what's the token that we just sent to you, Al? Mm -hmm. He's not going to know that. He doesn't have my stuff, right? So that, like, that is what security professionals will tell you is the number one thing you could do. So if people listening to this podcast, the one thing I would say take away from this is go back to your offices and make sure you're using that.
1: Yeah, absolutely, because it's a basic thing. Like my credit card companies. When, when I go to log into my credit card um, website, I have the choice to turn that on or turn it off. And it's as simple as saying, yes, I want that turned on. So when I try to log in, it sends me a code and I enter the code. But I think too many people are just, nope, I can't be bothered. And they, I don't think they're realizing what they're opening themselves up to. And I have to tell you, so there's like, here's the things I hear everyone's going to get hacked. There's nothing you can do, so I'm not doing anything about it. And then the other extreme is that, you know, you've got to spend a whole lot of money. You've all been hacked. You just don't realize it. So if I'm a small practitioner and I'm overwhelmed by this, what, what are you suggesting that I do in my office?
3: Yeah, that's an easy way. You know, it may be that your information may get compromised and you may be inevitable that that will happen. But do you really want to face the liability that's involved when The hacker uses your account to break into your email system or your document management system and steal information about your clients. Because guess what? Once that happens, you have an ethical and legal obligation to notify those clients that their information has been impacted. And what lawyer, when we are in the business of maintaining secrets for clients, wants Mm -hmm. to go tell their clients that, guess what? We didn't use the common thing of of multi-factor authentication and as a result, some bad guys got into our system and stole your information and you may now be subject to a data breach. Nobody wants to have that, that conversation. So it may seem a little daunting to some companies, particularly law firms, particularly small ones, to say, look, I don't have the money to do a lot in this space right now. It seems very overwhelming, but I could provide you two or three really good small cybersecurity firms that you can have a conversation with them, and they can tell you generally, here are your top five priorities. You can hire them to do an information security assessment where they come to your law firm, and they kind of give you a sense of, okay, look, you could be doing 100 different things, but here are the five things you need to be doing right now, mm-hmm. uh, and that I think can be really helpful because then it also gives you an opportunity to show your client you take it seriously. Because clients now are increasingly asking law firms, "What are you doing to secure my information?" We get those questions all the time. I mean, questionnaires with tens, if not scores, of questions in them from from large companies saying, "Are you doing this? Are you doing that? What are you doing for this?" What do you, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so you've got to be prepared to demonstrate that you're doing something. It's not enough to say, "Well." hopefully it won't happen to me. And taking the ostrich approach of sticking your head in the sand is just not the way to go.
2: Right. And since you touched upon the liability issues, um, what Florida bar ethical obligations do lawyers have to sec- secure client information? Because I, I feel like a lot of them think that you know, if, if they just keep it on their computer and they don't put it on another computer or on their iPad or on their phones, that it's fine, that they don't have to do anything else.
3: No, yeah, they st- they definitely have the eth- ethical obligations under Rule 1.6, and then under and legal obligations under the Florida Information Protection Act. To adopt what are called reasonable security safeguards, and that is a squishy term, you know right there's a lot of room for what that means, but um you know it means things like encrypting your information for sure, you know, making sure that all your information is encrypted at rest and in transit. So what does that mean? At rest is an example of at rest is when I'm looking at my laptop and as it's sitting there, all the information on there is encrypted. So when I turn on my laptop, the first thing it's gonna say is put in your password. And when I put in my password, it becomes unencrypted. and I'm able to read the information that's on there. That's encryption. So if a bad guy gets my laptop and he opens it up, can't do anything can't access anything in fact encryption is so important that the florida information protection act says that if encrypted information is accessed as a result of a data breach there's not even an obligation to notify unless there's some exception where like the bad guy gets your password that allows him to unencrypt so encryption is you know a big part of you know what are the what what do you have to do under these these standards you know and and, and so i think that You've got to be thinking about, you know, what is it? Looking at, you know, what what you have, what information you have. I think it all, all starts. We all often tell clients this: it starts with a data inventory, meaning getting a sense of what sort of data, sensitive information, are you collecting? Where is it residing? You know, what are you what are you doing with it? Uh, I'll go back to a second because I said encryption at at rest, but there's also encryption in transit, which is when you send an email, like that's it's leaving that laptop and going somewhere else. There is technology you can purchase, and I think maybe even free in some circumstances, where it will send the email in a way that's encrypted so that if it's intercepted in some way, the bad guy can't see it, right? So that's also another type of encryption that you want to sort of look into. And there are three types of safeguards in all of this. Uh, to take a big picture approach. There are administrative safeguards, there are procedural safeguards, and, I'm sorry, there are physical safeguards, and then there are technical safeguards. So encryption would be a kind of technical safeguard. Technical safeguard is like what you hire your IT guys to do, firewalls, you know, all the f- encryption, things like that. And then administrative safeguards would be things like training you know learning about the issues raising awareness about it training your employees to know what is a breach how should they be securing personal information what is personal information having a policy having an incident response plan and then you have your physical safeguards which is when someone comes to your law office can they just walk right into your filing cabinet is there somebody there to greet them a security guard to take their name you know do they have uh, do you have locks on your filing cabinets to the extent that it's paper documents those are physical safeguards and so The law and and the rules of ethics look to all three, and you have to have all three, uh, and there's not a a silver bullet. There's not a checklist that if you do these five things, you're good, but you have to demonstrate at least that you've been doing some things towards being as secure as you you can, and any security expert is going to tell you 100% security can never be reached, but you have to keep making an ongoing effort to improve the security of your law firm.
1: And so you're talking about there's a lot of high-tech things, the low-tech, like getting your staff to not click on the link in those emails, um, that's, that's a whole other thing. But what's your opinion on um, firms purchasing cybersecurity insurance?
3: I think it's a fantastic idea. And there and and in some ways it's against my own interests honestly as a <laughs> as a lawyer in this space because we're not necessarily on all the panels for these insurance companies. Right. But but that really the good reason why you want to have it is because the insurance companies will provide you a list of vendors. So when you think you've had some sort of an incident, you pick up the phone, you call your insurance company and they will tell you, Okay, here are the three or four law firms that we recommend that you use who can give you advice on what legal legally you have to do in terms of potentially notifying someone or not having to notify someone. Here are your list of cybersecurity vendors and forensic teams that can come in and, and figure out was there unauthorized access to information? Are you still being compromised? What can be done to prevent this from happening moving forward? Uh, That, I think, is maybe your most important vendor that's offered as part of the uh, cybersecurity insurance. And then if you determine that you do have an obligation to notify third parties, they will provide you with a list of vendors who can help send out the notices for you to all of the individuals and can help you develop FAQs for, you know, set up a call center if it's a really big, uh, you know, potential incident. Uh, mm-hmm. So it it really does help in that respect in terms of minimizing the cost of a response because if you were to add up, let's say you didn't have the insurance and you had to hire all three types of vendors, you're looking at potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees okay. as a result of it. I mean, I saw I saw a statistic recently that said that the average breach, the cost of an average breach, is something like I think three point one million dollars, which I think is I think that's escalated. I think it's I don't think that's those are not the breaches that I uh, that I see and. You know mm-hmm. the the mega breaches that these really large companies suffer obviously skews that number much higher. But are you looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially? Yes, as a, even as a smaller firm, because the forensic investigations are not cheap and they can be time-consuming, and you know the cost of remediating and and replacing equipment that's affected all of that. So, cybersecurity insurance, I think, is a is a great way to start. There are one or two really good carriers, I think, in this space, but there are a number of different carriers and you can talk to your broker and I'm sure they'll help you find one.
2: Right. I just want to reiterate that uh, there's a misconception that malpractice insurance, that, you know, your regular malpractice policy will cover this and it will not. Um, So it's important that people contact their insurance providers and make sure that they have this particular policy in place. You've talked about, of course, insurance providers being a good resource uh, after the fact. Um, But where else can solo or small firms uh, go to find reputable cybersecurity experts? Apart from yourself, of course. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um, Well, if I'm a lawyer listening to this and I'm at a smaller firm, I mean, look. I have my list of three or four small ones, but other than asking me, who are the cybersecurity experts? Uh, you can, you know, that well. There's different kinds of experts, right? You've got right. your forensic <laughs> experts, and in in that respect, I think just simply just doing some some research on Google, uh, and then yeah, I know the Florida Bar also has some member services uh, right. where there may be one or two forensic vendors. I think that are part of that. That I think that they you know, the lawyers can certainly. Uh, reach out to or asking a broker because I think that the brokers will know which vendors the carriers use and Mm -hmm. they can probably give you a heads up, you know, that way too. And then just getting involved in the space, you know, looking up information security experts in Florida, things like that uh, to kind of ask around. And then on the legal side, the easy way I say is look at Chambers. Um, You know, I mean, Chambers has a separate ranking for privacy and data security lawyers um, in the United States. Now, you are looking at primarily larger firms there, but you know, that's certainly one resource to find lawyers. in this space and and then I think you know there's different blogs that are out there as well. Right. Uh, I like I like a blog by oh I'm losing his name now. The Krebs, Brian Krebs from the who used to be work for the Washington Post. Yes. It's a really nice, easy digest easily digestible right. um, blog. And of course the Law Fuel as well has some good resources too. Legal fuel, sorry. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well it looks like we've reached the end of our program. That's that's excellent advice. Thank you Al psychally for joining us today.
2: So Al if our listeners have have any questions or want to follow up, and presumably they haven't watched the CLE because you do provide your contact information on there, uh, where can they reach you?
3: You can send me an email uh, at acyclee at shb.com. Uh, you can go to our website, Shokardi and Bacon, and find my bio and reach out to me that way. And you can also give me a call. And I'm happy to talk to anybody about it, especially my colleagues here in the in the Florida bar, happy to help however we can.
1: Excellent. So when you get done listening to our podcast today, please go encrypt your laptop and then go find Al CLE on legalfuel.com entitled Cybersecurity for Lawyers. If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar Podcast brought to you by Legal Fuel, the practice resource center of the Florida Bar on Legal Talk Network. I'm Christine Bilberry.
2: And I'm Carla Eckhart. Until next time, thank you for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to the Florida Bar podcast brought to you by the florida bars practice resource institute and produced by the broadcast professionals at legal talk network if you'd like more information about today's show please visit legaltalknetwork.com subscribe via itunes and rss find the florida bar the florida bar practice resource institute and legal talk network on twitter facebook and linkedin